after the mother of all reshuffles and with a Bobby Ewing coming out of the shower political moment with the return of David Cameron, it felt like a good moment to do a quick podcast talking to Tom Selby on his thoughts around the shape of the new government and what we might hear in the autumn statement in a few days' time. settled i'm settled i'm settled excellent well more so than the government (laughs) (laughs) that was quite a 24 hours wasn't it unbelievable i think everyone was staggered including uh kay burley and the sky news crew who i saw reacting to david cameron stepping out of the the black car i think it's quite it's quite rare these days that you get a a genuine shock of that nature things tend to leak either purposely or, or, or by or by accident certainly when you're talking about a, a high profile appointment of that nature so for for david cameron to step out of the car and and be going in to get the foreign secretary's job and genuinely nobody to have even had a, a whiff of it just shows how much effort must have been put in and how few people must have known about it before uh, before it was confirmed yeah really impressive and i was feeling like if you rewind a few weeks it felt to me like rishi mm. sunak was Running out of time to do anything to shift the dial. And obviously, we've got the autumn statement in a couple of weeks. We'll come on to that. And there's still probably a spring budget to go before the next general election. But it felt like the conference, you know, it wasn't a bad speech, but it didn't really reset the game. Now, you know, you can argue about whether what he's done now will make a difference to his electoral prospects, but you can't fault him for not, you know, he certainly rolled all the dice, hasn't he? It's it's just... I've never seen anything like it in terms of a reshuffle. But what's the, what's the, there's a phrase, um, and this is a family podcast, but throw enough excrement at the wall yeah, yeah. and um, hope that some will will stick. So I think a few, it was only a matter of weeks ago that the strategy appeared to be distance yourself as much from the the <laughs> leaders of the past. And within, within a matter of weeks, one of the, arguably the most famous Tory leader of the past, certainly, you know, decade or so, is, is back in a senior position. So I think it, it it shows a certain bravery, I suppose, from Rishi Sunak, and I boldness, think it also boldness. boldness, and it also and it also you know speaks to the desperation of the position in in the polls. And if you know if you're trying to win a general election and you are where where they are, then then frankly you've got to turn over every possible stone to try to get re-elected, and that's that's what it feels like he's doing. And it, it may look quite quite desperate, but it is also understandable, I think. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Quite a lot of change. So Jeremy Hunt's still Chancellor, but a fair amount of change at the Treasury behind him. So Victoria Atkins coming in. John Glenn gets a different job there. Andrew Griffith moving mm. on, which is kind of interesting, uh, replaced by Bim Afalami. Do you know anything about Bim Afalami, Tom? Only the, the information I read on a New Model Advisor article about his appointment. It was a new name on me. It's quite, yeah, they're Andrew, Andrew Griffiths um, moving on. Um, not, not surprised he's got another big job in government um, and in certainly my my dealings with him and in the you know things I've heard him say in speeches he's given. He's a, a very engaged, you know, intelligent minister. Um, I think it's a, it's a shame in terms of pushing for some particular financial services reform and things like ISA reform. I'm sure we'll get onto that. Yeah. Um, he's been a, he's been a kind of a leading voice, and I'd, you'd hope, given where we where we are, that ch- any any changes that are going to come from that work will still still happen. But clearly, you know, ministerial changes, as, as you know better than most, is is part and parcel of the the uncertainty of trying to get sensible policy 
through. Yeah, and it's just just the nature of it. And we got a bit spoiled with Steve Webb and then Guy, didn't we? With the length of tenure in those jobs, the DWP. But as you say, this is just how it goes in government. And if you last a couple of years, you're doing well. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to Andrew and, and the, the awesome statement shortly and some thoughts about what we might mm. see there. Over at the DWP, it appears that, well, obviously, Laura Trott's gone and we kind of miss her because she was good. She was clever. She was engaged. She was, you know, busy. And I guess that's why, partly why she's been promoted. And it appears that we've got Paul Maynard as the new Minister for Pensions. But at the time of recording, we're not actually sure that that's the case, right? Yeah, another another name I'll, I'll, I'll confess I haven't had any interaction with or have a huge amount of familiarity with. And again, yeah, clearly, you know, we need a new minister in that role because there is stuff going on within the DWP. Clearly, we're potentially, well, not clearly, but we're potentially at a stage of the electoral cycle where the, there isn't a huge amount of time to go for people to actually do stuff. We've got rumours of potentially a summer election ahead now, possibly in May. I've read in a couple of places. Clearly, you know, if that's the case, then whether it be at the Treasury or or within the DWP, the, the latitude that anybody knew there's got to, to do anything will be pretty limited, to say the least. Oh, you'd know better than I on this. What they call a night watchman role, isn't it? It's just... It is. <laughs> My colleague, my colleague Rachel Vay used that term as well um, yesterday, and I think it's it's about it's about right. They'll, I guess, the night watchman in this case will be hoping that they've not got the equivalent of Glenn McGrath or Alan Donald steaming in at ninety miles an hour at their throat. They'll be hoping to to get some kind of what you call dibbly dobblers, some medium pace outswing when the lights fading and you can't have the really fast bowlers coming in. But we'll okay, see. that's probably enough cricketing metaphor for one <laughs> podcast. In this in this case, the the, the relevant bowler will be Joe. Furness, isn't that right? The new Labour appointee mm. for, for work and pensions, placing Matt Rodder, who frankly didn't have a lot to say about pensions as far as I could tell. But, I mean, having said that, most Labour pensions policy seems to go through Rachel Reeves at the moment. I was intrigued to see Joe Cumbo's piece on the FT yesterday. Looks like it got briefed out one or two other places as well. Labour talking about their plans for a comprehensive mm. review of pensions should they get elected next year, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, interesting and broad enough that you're not committing to anything in particular. I slightly I slightly wondered with that. I did read the piece and I thought it was very good. Um, I, I, I wonder whether this is the beginning of Labour trying to, to dig itself out of, not, not a massive hole, but a, a minor hole that's got in, itself into in its position or around the lifetime allowance, clearly saying that you're, you're going to reverse the lifetime allowance abolition immediately after the Chancellor's statement's one thing, but when lifetime allowance itself is then removed and replaced with something else, then trying to come back in and reinstate it and think of all the transitional complexities that go with that, it's it's certainly enough to make my brain explode. And I suspect it's something that Labour hadn't considered in a huge amount of detail when it came up with it with its response. So in announcing a review of all pensions, which is um, impossibly broad, I think you, I think you'll agree. I'm sure they'll they'll find a way to come up with a policy around the lifetime allowance which doesn't hopefully involve the levels of, of complexity that would be needed if you were going to reintroduce it. But well, watch um, this space. And particularly as Conservatives have done them a favour with the detail of the implementation of the changes to the lifetime allowance where they're now going to tax death benefits or some death benefits which to me always seemed like a good idea and I know retrospective taxation is never a good idea and if people have made plans 
based on one set of tax rules to then move the goalposts is a bit harsh. But the whole setup we had post-2015, where you could throw money into a tax-exempt fund, get loads of tax relief from the government, and then pass the money on tax-free to your kids, which was the system, I mean, just looked daft to me. And there was Rachel saying, well, we'll not introduce any new capital taxes. So in that respect... The present government's decision to start introducing death taxes on, on lump sums post-75, I mean, they've kind of done her a favour there, right? Potentially, yeah. We, we need to see the detail of the, of the policy, though. We've had this slightly confusing position where, and, and you know, we're, we're at risk of getting into the weeds here, but where we've had the, the statement around the taxation of uncrystallised benefits pre-75 was made, suggesting, suggesting we, were, we were going to get some version of a death tax introduced, but then the legislation doesn't quite seem to follow suit. There's still a section, I believe, of the legislation around transitional arrangements that just says TBC, which tells you all you need to know about the the level of kind of detailed thinking that has gone on and has been he's been put out around this quite complicated change. So we need to see exactly how they're planning to do it and if they're going to go through with that. I think it's an interesting one because I, th- I think most people agree that the changes introduced in 2015 around death benefits were incredibly generous. It was obviously on purpose. I think there's been a the tendency to debate this and say this is some sort of anomaly. It was clearly, it was a decision that George Osborne and David Cameron came up with and briefed to the national press and said this is a way that people are going to be able to pass on their money potentially tax-free through their pensions and all the rest of it. So it was an incredibly generous change that was brought through. I would understand if the government were to look at taxing pensions in a different way, it would certainly be preferable to look at the death benefits regime to say things like flat rate pension tax relief or more fundamental reforms, in my opinion. I think that's a, it's, it's lower hanging fruit, I would suggest, going for pensions on death rather than looking at more, more fundamental reforms and all the complexities and problems that causes, particularly for DB schemes. I agree with that. I think you need a lot of political capital, a, lot, a big majority to take that one on, and we'll just have to wait and see how the election plays out. First, so look, let's come back to stuff that was on the table. And I don't want to pick through the details of all of these. Let's just pinch the screen and zoom out a little bit. There was quite a lot going on with the DWP coming back to Laura Trott's departure. And I guess a lot of this stuff will play through, but there's a couple I want to pick out. So there's all the default consolidators and the pot for life stuff. There's the long-term investing in liquid illiquid assets stuff that we may well hear more about in Mansion House. There's decumulation from occupational pensions, value for money trustee skills and culture, AE reforms, and pension dashboards. I think that covers most of what was currently on the DWP's table. So for me, there's a couple to pick out there, and I'd be really interested in your thoughts on these and others. First of all, there's the auto-enrollment reforms, where 2017 is now happening, but it still hasn't happened yet. So, you know, we need to get that one across the line, and will that still happen this side of the general election? And then the default consolidators, which was meeting quite a lot of resistance from the industry. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on those and any of the others that I've just touched on there. Yeah, so, so it feels to me like for whoever, whomever the may, uh, new pensions minister may be, um, it, it's likely to be the, the expansion of automatic enrolment that's potentially going to be the big thing that they might be able to claim to achieve in what may be only a few months' tenure in the job. So as you say, that 2017 hasn't happened yet, which feels slightly, slightly strange in 2023, but it is true. So the reforms to decrease the, the minimum age of automatic enrolment to 18 and remove the low qualifying earnings band have been lingering around for, for a while. I guess if, if I were to have a, a very boring bet on what may be announced at the autumn statement in relation to this or whenever it's announced, it, w- it would seem to me that 
given that review promise to bring in those reforms by the mid-2020s, and given we have a general election, and given that the government probably doesn't want to do anything quite yet that would take money out of people's pockets, albeit out of their pockets and into their pension scheme, I wonder if April 2025 to expand those automatic enrolment reforms just after a general election might be the the bookie's favourite. It would, I suspect there may, I may be wrong, but we, we are in a position, I think, as a country where, as, as a uh, chief secretary once said, there is no money left. And so I do slightly wonder if we're going to, both in this autumn statement and perhaps even in the budget as well, get a, a, a large number of, here's some stuff we'd like to do when financial circumstances allow type announcements. And I think expanding automatic enrolment, April 2025, you would hope inflation and interest rates are starting to calm down by then. That that may be the time for the government to do that. But it clearly, as you as you've talked about many times before, this it's it needs to be done. And I think I've I've slightly come round in my thinking on this. I was my initial view was when you've got inflation where it is, you can't, well, where it has been, to to think about taking more money out of people's pockets at that time. It's it's just you, politically you can't do it. But actually, there is. A, I think I've come round to the argument that actually there's never going to be a time to do this when there isn't an argument against it from that point of view. And what we're talking about here is a very minor expansion in automatic enrolment when most people agree that. You know, minimum contributions, whether it's based on band earnings or whether you remove that qualifying earnings limit, they need to go up. And so this is a very small step in that direction. And I think once once we get some clarity from government on the timetable for these changes, then I think the debate around how we go further beyond that can begin to happen because it's it is slightly worrying and it's understandable given where we've been over the last three years, but it's slightly worrying that that debate hasn't really kicked off outside of the industry. I think it needs to. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think you're right, you can more to drop in the 2017 changes to, to take effect in a couple of years' time. And I also think you're right, I think you make a really good point, that it's quite hard to talk about what happens after that until you've got that bit yeah. down. So the two themes that really came through in the Mansion House speech were consolidation of pension provision mm. and funneling pension money into the UK economy and growth. And I, I suspect we'll hear more about the latter in the autumn statement, possibly mm. the former as well, yeah? Yeah, you would, one, one would think so. It was quite surprising not to see any mention of those in the, the King's speech, actually, given the, the level of importance that certainly the Treasury has, has placed on them. It may be that they feel they don't need primary legislation to get those reforms through. I'm not entirely sure. But we are, we are due some, some white smoke, certainly on the Mansion House reforms I, I don't I don't know about you I I still remain my natural reaction is slightly skeptical to this idea of conflating political slash UK based targets around growth and investment with the long-term savings goals of millions of, of Brits now I can totally understand why from a government's perspective they would look down this road you look at the expanse of pensions across DB and workplace DC you're talking about trillions of pounds of money if you can even shift the dial a little bit on the way that that money's invested then you're talking about tens of billions hundreds of billions of pounds extra of capital potentially flowing into UK based companies or private equity if the, if the government has its way. My, my concern is just that in pushing the political imperative that the good outcomes of members will potentially 
be risked. And I think we, we've talked about this before, the, the way that those Mansion House reforms were announced and particularly some of the messages that came from the Chancellor on Twitter about people having 12% bigger pensions and £1,000 extra in their pension as a result of a, a relatively mild shift towards PE-style investments that do come with high costs, possibly higher returns, but not guaranteed, certainly higher costs. I think that's a, that was a, a significant red flag to me and I, I would hope at least in the, the way that this is communicated in the future, there'll be a little bit more care around the possible pros, but also the potential cons, because they they do clearly exist. Well, and it's notable that we were hearing, I mean, you you couldn't get a piece of paper between Jeremy Hunt and Rachel Reeves' position on Mm. this. You know, they're both singing the same tune. They're both saying it'll bring you bigger pension pots. Mm. They're both saying, oh, and by the way, it'll be good for the economy too. So, I mean, there's no one pushing against this. The only thing slowing this down is the industry's, well, to be fair, pretty sophisticated ability to drag its feet, throw logs on the tracks, and generally slow politicians down when they don't like what they're doing. But from a political point of view, it's going to happen, right? You know, there's, there's no one arguing against this right now. So whether, whether we get a Conservative or a Labour government next time round, it's going to be full steam ahead to force more consolidation, to force those pension funds to invest in the UK economy. Trustees will sort of suck their teeth and talk about fiduciary duty and so on. But this is the direction of travel right now. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and, and there are different parts of these reforms as well, right? So we've got the, the Mansion House Compact. I suspect that deal was brokered partly because those, you know, those schemes didn't want to be forced to invest in a certain way and they've got trustees with a fiduciary duty as well. The, I guess you know, the political tra- direction of travel is the political direction of, of travel and it's for me and, and, and any other organisation who has concerns about that to voice those concerns. But you're, you, are, you are right that there is violent agreement between the, the respective treasury teams and, and, if, and if anything the, the debate doesn't seem to be on whether or not there should be a move towards private equity style vehicles. The debate seems to be whether or not Labour would go further and faster in investing in what are riskier type assets. Now, if if those investments pay off over the long term, then clearly members will will thank politicians for their you know their foresight and their prescience. But there's I, I'm I'm concerned that that won't happen. And if that doesn't happen, then you know we'll have another. I suppose it won't be viewed as a, a pensions scandal on our hands because we won't have necessarily the counter narrative of what your pension might have been worth if it hadn't been diverted towards towards PE style investments. But if if people end up with smaller pension pots as a result of those reforms, then it, nobody's going to going to thank them for for that. But you know, we'll, we'll only find that out over the course of. 20, 30, 40, 50 years, at which time Jeremy Hunt and, and Rachel Reeves won't give a monkeys. <laughs> That's a very cynical take, Tom. <laughs> so the only other observation I'd make on this is, is the demographics. And I think they're mm. right to be concerned about economic growth and where it's going to come from in the long term. I think there is a real risk to this country from the falling birth rate and the, the, the way the population is going to top out and the strain that can put on sort of the social contract and the cohesion of society when younger cohorts of the population look across and see the baby boom working in reverse for them and all mm. the, the economic conveyor belts went upwards for their preceding generation start going downwards again and I, I you know it's good that politicians are worrying about so, looking ahead to the autumn statement, we've already talked a bit about pensions investing in illiquid assets. Mm. Andrew Griffith, in a speech a few days ago, also talked about ISAs. He was being very enthusiastic about ISAs and wanting people to invest more in ISAs and to invest, do more investing through ISAs and less in cash. And 
that's something that's been close to AJ Bell's heart. You guys have campaigned around that. So I'll be interested in your thoughts on that. And he also talked about the advice guidance gap. And I suspect we're going to hear something on the FCA reform review of that imminently. So so, so what are your thoughts around those? So I, I see the two as, as kind of intrinsically linked. So we've been heavily involved in the work around ICES and trying to simplify that product. And in very broad terms, our thinking is if we can get the product set, so ICES and ideally pensions, as simple as they can possibly be. And then if we can provide people with the right routes to engaging with those products, be it through regulated financial advice, ideally, or through better forms of guidance, then that over the long term would be a better place for us to be than where we are at the moment. So uh, a large part of our focus has been around on, on the ISA simplification agenda. We've had we've had some pretty positive discussions both with the industry and with, with government around that idea. I think there is, I think the government's been on record as saying that they are open to ideas on ISA simplification and making, you know, that upfront choice that people face. So I think the idea that we've got six different versions of ISA, some with different allowances and different aims is, it's not, it's not what you would create if you started from scratch in the same way as a pensions world with, world with multiple annual allowances and a lifetime allowance previously, that isn't what you create from scratch. So we can kind of started with if you could try to simplify that upfront choice for people then would that potentially make people more likely to engage and invest in ISAs because the whole upfront shop window wouldn't be quite as confusing. Our, our consumer race research suggests that that would be welcomed by consumers. It would make them more likely to invest. Of course, there's a difference between answering a survey and actually making a decision. But based on the evidence that we've got, that would make people more likely to make that decision. So we're going to have to see exactly what comes forward from the Chancellor at the autumn statement. So we are expecting something. One of the key thing messages that we've been putting to Treasury is, well, there's two things. One is to make sure that this isn't overly focused on an electoral timeline of yeah, essentially April next year, because the la that's the last time you've, you've got a, a new tax year to introduce these things. So don't rush whatever ISA simplification you can possibly do between now and then, because the danger is you'll just pick the easy bits and you won't think about the overall picture. And secondly, try not to conflate ISA simplification, which is a you know a long-term reform, maybe not a huge amount of political capital in it, frankly, but a long-term reform for the benefit of consumers. Don't conflate that with a, a wrapping the you know, wrapping the GB flag around a reform to get more people investing in UK-based assets or UK companies or UK funds. I think if there's, I've had, I've been involved in debates where on the one hand we're talking about ISA simplification, and as part of the same conversation we're talking about creating a new GB ISA. And I'm kind of sat there thinking those are two diametrically opposed things. We, if, if ISA simplification is genuinely of interest, then creating a new type of ISA cannot be part of that process. So we've been kind of gently trying to have that conversation and just say, there's, I, we understand that there's a desire to push more investing in, in UK assets. There may be other ways that that can be done, but keep that away from the ISA simplification agenda, which we think is the, the right thing to do for, for the long term, for the benefit of consumers, advisors are behind it as well. We just, it just feels to me like the right thing to do. Well, judging by Andrew Griffith's comments, we're certainly going to hear something, whether he's listened to you guys or everybody else as well, and he simplifies and makes things more complicated at the same time remains to be seen. <laughs> so, and, and look, the FCA is separate to the Treasury, but they kind of 
you know, they do talk to each other. So it's beginning to feel like we'll, we'll see something on that advice guidance review concurrent with the autumn statement, some, some sort of statement. And the noises mm. I've been hearing suggest some sort of expansion around the, you know, people like you should think about doing these kind of things, sort of guidance that is theoretically okay within the current envelope, but firms are understandably coy and wary about actually doing because because it can quickly start to look like it. Yeah, so I've heard similar to you around that. So that's where we're, we're expecting something around making, giving firms more clarity around the kind of guidance that they may be able to provide. Now, whether that's allowed or not within the current rules, there are long-term you know, cultural things that are built up as well as regulatory blockers to firms offering that kind of guidance. Frankly, they're always going to be risk-based decisions by firms with the Financial Ombudsman Service potentially sat in the background as as a threat. So I think it's the right thing for the government and the FCA to try to unlock that deadlock because it has been a deadlock for a while. And I think there's a, a reasonable challenge to the industry that maybe we haven't been going far enough in offering that kind of guidance. But then there's a reasonable challenge to the regulator as well as well in getting that that certainty. So it kind of it takes two to tango, I think, on that one. And and it's it'll be positive if we can get some progress there because I think people aren't getting the help that they that they need. We're also expecting some some version of simplified advice to be explored as part of that piece of work as well. Now I try to be positive on most reforms, but I remain hugely sceptical about the idea that simplified advice, something which was announced over a decade ago and never really took off, can be made to work. I think the the kind of bold economics of trying to offer a proper financial advice service and the risks associated with that and the regulatory costs associated with that mean that even if you strip back everything that it's to be able to deliver proper financial advice at a cost that is acceptable to large numbers of consumers is really really difficult uh, if if it's proven to work if large you know if large numbers of big institutions and I'm sure we're talking more about banks here rather than high street advisors if they're able to come forward with propositions that are safe and useful for people and low enough cost that there's demand then I'm happy to hold up my hands and say I was completely wrong and the FCA was right to go down this road I just think there's there's a danger of repeating the mistakes of, of the past and kind of chasing a bit of a ghost when it comes to delivering low cost financial advice to the masses that people want it's it's proven really really difficult historically and We'll, we'll see what they come out with, but I'm sceptical that anything that the FCA says will be able to significantly move the dial to the point where the 8.6 million or so people who've got investable assets will be able to really take advantage of those reforms. Yeah, no, that all makes sense to me. I agree with you on all of that. And hopefully we'll find out pretty soon. Anything else coming out of either the reshuffle or the awesome statement we should touch on? Oh, I don't think so. I, I guess what one, one thought that I had was there remains persistent speculation, I guess, mainly in the, shall we say, right-leaning press around IHT mm-hmm. reform. My gut instinct is that there's very little chance of that happening. I think clearly Tory backbenchers in particular would want to see significant reform in that area, that area either increasing the allowances or abolishing IHT altogether. I think 
it feels to me like people are slightly forgetting just what happened at the mini budget just over a year ago, just how close the UK came to complete financial disaster based on announcing expensive reforms that weren't fully costed. If you were going to fully cost something like abolition of IHT, the cost would be significant. I don't think, you know, some people say, would, would advocate doing that and saying, well, actually, the, you know, growth will make up the difference because it will, you know, people will be more incentivized to, to be more productive. That's not going to wash with international markets. So you'd have to have the upfront money to do it. And I just don't think the government will have the upfront money to do it. Now, it, it may be that, as I kind of said at the top, it may be that the government feels perhaps at the budget, it's able to say, we have an ambition to increase tax allowances and ambition to remove IHT. And if you elect us after this general election, once economic circumstances allow, we'll do it. But I think the chances of any kind of significant tax reform, given where the nation's finances are in the next six months or so, I'd, I'd say a, a reasonably slim. But um, again, I'm happy to have egg on my face in six months' time when they abolish IHT and I'm completely wrong. Well, no, everything you say makes sense. No, I mean, those are the fiscal arguments. There's also just the political mood music. You know, what we saw through the reshuffle was, you know, very much attacked towards back towards the centre. And I just think, you know, any radical reform of IHT would just not be consistent with the kind of tone that it appears the reshuffle is trying to set and trying to regain some of the centre ground. Mm, yeah, we'll, agree. We'll find out soon enough. Tom, great to talk to you. We might have to do a follow-up after, after the autumn statement in a couple of weeks' time, but thank you very much. Always a pleasure, mate. Cheers. So there you go. We've probably got it all wrong. Wait until the autumn statement and you'll know for sure. It feels like a lot's going to happen in the next six to 12 months in politics, so there's a lot here I'm sure we're going to be revisiting as the months go by. Thanks for listening.